0: the fourth episode of the squadron's pirate radio podcast i'm michaela sani co-host along with scott king the general manager of the royal nova scotia yacht squadron and we're so pleased to introduce today's guest vice commodore of member services india white india welcome
1: thank you so much for having me i'm so excited to be a part of this new initiative that you guys have put together um so big thank you to you guys for doing this uh while we're all having a bit of downtime and keeping everybody engaged uh, I, I mentioned to you that I've I've listened to all the episodes, and it's such a neat window into um, our members outside of the club. So we all know each other at the club, but gives us a little window into who who everybody is a little bit further. So oh, good job, thanks. guys! Thanks.
2: Okay, we can just we, we can just you. stop right there. I think we're done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's the episode. It's been great.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much, Inya. It's great to have you on the program. Um, and uh, I was reading the bio that your agent sent through. Um, very, very entertaining read in it itself. You say here that you had an unconventional start to sailing. So why did you use that phrase?
1: Well, I don't know if it's unconventional, but I would say the majority of people that race or, or race on some of the um, offshore boats and stuff like that have been through the Learn to Sail program, similar to what we offer at the, at the club today. Um, my start didn't start at learn to sail. So I guess that's uh, that's why I call right. it a little bit unconventional.
2: Right. So was that your family that, that sort of taught you how to sail?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm a third generation member at the club and uh, it started with my grandfather, Don Morrison. Uh, my grandparents lived on the arm. So uh, I spent a lot of my childhood on the water, uh, on the arm, but also my, my mother's family has uh, a summer place up in Shediac, New Brunswick. So I got to spend time on or in the water up there as well. A little bit warmer and sandier in Shediac uh, than it is in Halifax. But uh, both were were great for their own reasons. So um, we had a, uh, a motorboat, actually. The family had a motorboat. It was uh, a Rosbro called Haggis Six. And the name Haggis <laughs> comes from my grandfather's <laughs> sense of humor. Uh, and obviously, the right. name being Scottish. Um, but yeah, so I spent most of my childhood uh, on haggis with my family, uh, going on adventures around the harbor, um, you know, going over to McNabb's Island or just doing the regular cruise up the harbor, deep sea fishing, a little bit of shark fishing. So um, a hearty sort of life on the water. Um, in the summers growing up, but um, my dad is a very skilled sailor and at the boathouse we had an old laser from the 70s, I'm not exactly sure whose it was, um, between my dad and my uncle I think, and uh, it had the original Elvstrom sails <laughs> and uh, a wooden dagger board and wooden rudder and that's sort fun. of my first yeah, I still have it today. Actually, Jason and I have it here at the house we live on a lake. So um, it's not the same hull because Hurricane Juan actually uh, took that hull. We tied it to a tree, th- thinking it wouldn't blow away or float away, and then the tree fell on it. So, but the the hull we have today is the same vintage, so it feels the same. But um, yeah, it was a nice, you know, dinghy to to learn how to sail on. And my dad uh, grew up sailing himself. He was a racer. He raced solings and uh with a lot of familiar names around the club um including John Roy and eventually he ended up going to uh the Olympics i don't he didn't get to sail um because it was the oh, munich right. 72 olympics but uh yeah i guess a lot of the, yeah a lot of the stories i heard of my my dad sailing included John Roy. And I think uh, later in life, I learned <laughs> why they were mainly centered around John and, and, and uh, sort of the stories around, you know, not liking to lose, I guess it was very entertaining. But yeah, so my dad uh, taught my, my siblings and I had a sail, mainly my brother and I, my sister was less interested. Uh, Mac Morrison, yeah, sure. you guys may know from the club or at the binnacle. Um so we learned in the northwest arm navigating those gusty uh, breezes in the in the arm how to sail and then i did take a couple lessons up in up in Shediac as well uh, but yeah so that's sort of the unconventional start that i had um, in into sailing i, I couldn't hear what you... <laughs> <laughs> that my watch. sorry it was not me <laughs> That was
2: serious. Gary, <laughs> like be quiet. Um, we were talking with Ryan Anderson um, on episode two, I think it was, and he was talking about. I asked him about um, the fact that East Coast and specifically Nova Scotian sailors, you know, we, we we definitely punch above our weight when it comes to performance on the water, and I asked him why that was. And obviously, you know, we're all built of tough stuff, and I say we, obviously, because I'm part of the team. Sailing and growing up sailing in Halifax is a is a difficult. Um, journey because of the unpredictable weather and it's pretty rough out there and you sort of learn to to adapt and and um and be tough is that is that right
1: Yeah I think I mean I was definitely more sheltered in the arm than going out in the harbor like some of the folks like the learn to sail um teams do um but I think my hardiness comes more from uh my dad really you know sort of putting my brother and I out on the boat and in the laser and just saying, you know, go, and then we had to make it home on our own. So, uh, you know, he was always keeping an eye on us, but uh, that in his mind, and I, I agree with it, it was sort of the best way to learn uh, how to get around and all your points of sale. Um, so I think my hardiness ca- sort of came from that and uh, our dad's encouragement in in, uh, in in sort of figuring it out on our own and then helping us sort of perfect some of the skills that we had. Um, yeah and then from there we ended up i guess when i was a young teenager my uncle rod morrison also a member of the club um he uh bought a i think it was a cnc six, 26 so that was my introduction to wednesday night racing so we would just uh go around the cans and 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 by racing i would say my introduction to losing we definitely <laughs> didn't do very well <laughs> I think we spent most of our time going sideways on that boat, but, uh, it was fond family memories and, uh, a good time for sure. Spending time with the family. So I understand that it was, um, actually past
0: vice Commodore Liz White who introduced you into keelboat racing. So walk us through, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, uh, I was working at so when when I was in university here in Halifax I worked at the Binnacle as a summer student uh, with my good buddy Jessica Fennell so Liz White would come in and we would always have a good time when she came in and one time she was looking for crew so she asked uh, Jessica and I and Jessica had taken sailing down at uh, Lunenburg Yacht Club so she also had some some skills on the sailboat. And uh, so, yeah, she invited us out and we started doing Wednesday night races with Liz and we did the Thursday night uh, women's series that was run out of, of AYC with Liz as well. Um, so that's where I, I sort of started, you know, participating on a bit of a team and, and doing more regular racing and starting to look at it a little bit more competitively than I did when I sailed with my family. Um, and at that point I was obviously older. Um, And then it was um, actually Luke Porter, who I was at AYC, and it was, I think it was the AYC opener uh, in 2007 or so, or 2006. And uh, it was a really stormy day, so the smaller boats weren't going out, so Rogue Wave, Liz's boat wasn't going out. And they were looking for some extra weight to take on their boat, and uh, it was a Beneteau 367 named Chow and uh so at the time the benny 367 was you know the boat it was (laughs) the coolest boat uh or one of the fastest boats around in the premier class um back in the day when you know third wave and all those boats were around um so i was ecstatic to get invited to to race with them and then i ended up racing with them for i think it was two years um so doing you know the opener circuits back when that was still a thing so you'd start with AYC, RNSYS, Shearwater, DYC, BBYC so every weekend for five weeks was taken up by opening regattas and the Wednesdays and Thursdays in between that we would race um and then uh we'd get right into metro and then Chester after that POW so um very busy all of a sudden I went into a very busy you know race schedule with with sailing it was it was great summers, great memories from that.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, that's obviously you sort of switch gears into a whole, a whole world of um of competitive and very regular racing thing as well. You you talked about the um the race from uh, Saint Martin to to Newport um by Bermuda. You said it was a, a unique and memorable adventure. Did you hit the Bermuda Triangle, or was that a an interesting adventure? How how so? <laughs>
1: yeah. So ever since I was a child. I, uh, I dreamed of sailing offshore. That was, that was my, my big thing. Like I really wanted to be an offshore sailor Um, even to the point where when I first went to university, I went into physics and took advanced physics because I wanted to go into meteorology and maybe be a meteorologist on a, on a boat. Um, That, that was a dream learned. It was more of a hobby. I'm a big weather geek Um, and went into business and marketing. Um, But yeah, So I used to volunteer as a child for the Marblehead to Halifax ocean race every second year when it would happen. Um, My aunts were known as the midnight Morrisons. So they would um, volunteer sort of in the later shifts because, because that's when all the excitement would happen when all the boats would start coming in and they would volunteer for the yacht services under Jeannie church. And uh, my grandmother was, was famous for making sandwiches and making sure that everybody was fed. So I was always sort of involved in, you know, seeing the yachts come in and, uh, you know, hearing the immediate stories and everybody joking around about what happened offshore or the amazing harrowing stories of getting through the weather and, uh, accomplishing the race. So that was always something that I held in high regard as far as, you know, a dream of mine to be able to race offshore. Um, so yeah, in, uh, my first time offshore was, um, with Chow, I got to deliver down to Marblehead, and then um, that was uh, experienced and, and and wanted more. In uh, then in 2013, I think it was. Um, I got a call from one of my friend childhood friends, Haley Allen. Uh, she was working on a yacht called Heroina, a custom Freres uh, 74 foot prayers basically designed after the 12 meters. So a beautiful, beautiful yacht, they were down in St. Martin and, uh, they needed to deliver the boat to Newport. So it wasn't a race. It was a, it was a delivery. Um, and at the time I was, uh, kind of flexible with my, my schedule. So I was able to go join her, her actually, Charlie Underwood, who is at the club as well. Um, he, uh, he came as well. So the two of us went down to, uh, St. Martin, met up with the boat and got to sail from St. Martin to Bermuda and then Bermuda to Newport Ro- Rhode, o- Rhode Island. So that was sort of, uh, not only my first great adventure offshore, uh, but also a bit of a look into the, the yachty lifestyle of what it's like to work on a yacht and, uh, and, sort of sail one of these beautiful super impressive yachts so yeah it was a very memorable experience just sort of not something i ever really imagined i'd be i'd be able to do but yeah we went directly through the bermuda triangle uh nothing to report (laughs) nothing (laughs) we all like just like
2: like looking at each other going, okay we're about Uh, to cross it we're about to cross it and here we are and then like nothing actually happened like no no dragons or ufos or
0: Yeah. yeah no one disappeared (laughs)
2: bit <laughs> of any climax like
1: <laughs> I think I was the only like <laughs> I think I was the only like real newbie on board as far as uh you know offshore experience <laughs> so maybe I was the only one thinking about that and and you know it was such a relaxing and chill experience that uh it wasn't stormy at all and we had following seas following wind. so it was gorgeous the weather was was incredible um and we were doing a lot of fishing, catching Mahi Mahi and Big Eye Tuna, stuff like that. So it was, it was very, were you very chill. Lucky, nothing. We were you uh, very
2: lucky. If you had been out there to with a bunch on. of Australians, they would have been picking on you a lot about giving you all kinds of things to be scared about. <laughs> um,
1: well, we did we did experience some weird things on the second half of the trip. So maybe that's where it caught up to us. We got uh, stuck in Bermuda for, and I say stuck, it was a pretty nice place to be stuck. I think we were there for uh, you know, seven or eight days while we were looking for a weather window to get from Bermuda to Newport. And uh, so we found a window, but it was a tight window. So we had to be very careful. And we got to the continental shelf sort of between Bermuda and, and North America. And all of a sudden we started seeing fins everywhere and there was uh, plankton in the water. And so like orange stuff floating everywhere. And uh, then we started seeing more and more fins and the, you, we could see them swimming. It was flat, calm uh, just before sunset. And so we called everybody up on deck and we were all looking and we just kept spotting them and spotting them and spotting them. And, and you can ask Charlie and Haley as, as a reference, but I think we saw like 40 sharks uh, swimming through the water and we didn't know what they were at the time, but then we ended up getting extremely close to them. We had the boat on autopilot and we were all standing up on the bow and again, 74 foot boat. So to be able to run from the bow to the stern to take it off autopilot (laughs) uh, and control the boat was a bit of a jaunt. So, um, we were on a collision course with a shark and, uh, they were the shark was going to t-bone us essentially so the captain started making his way back uh but didn't make it back on time and the shark came right up beside us on the bow i actually have a video of it and it's on youtube really cool um and it took a hard 90 and went down the side of of the boat um and it turns out it was a basking shark so not threatening not threatening at all they were just uh Mm. sort of swimming around on this yeah, exactly. So they were just swimming around on the surface feeding, but there were so many of them. It was absolutely insane. And those things are huge. Like the one that went down the side of the boat was, you know, probably 15, 16 feet long. So um, it was a very unique experience. And then beyond that, we got into, I think that night, actually, we ended up getting into some pretty stormy conditions. So maybe that's where the curse of the the Bermuda Triangle hit us. We ended up in the middle of the night, the fire alarm went off, and uh, all, kinds, all kinds of things that, for a bit of a newbie offshore, uh, got the heart rate up for sure. But it was a
0: great experience. Yeah. We had a great. We'll have to side. find that video and that, add it to our Flotsam and jetson page. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: for sure.
0: I, I think it was the Bermuda Triangle conversation. It was the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Ooh. yeah we'll yeah, okay, add
0: okay, in some f- eerie music yeah no, okay
2: <laughs> folks at home i don't know if you noticed that but something very weird just happened um <laughs> you earlier on you were you were saying you, your your dream as a as a teenager growing up was to was to do marblehead so you know talk me through how or talk us through um how you arrived there
1: yeah so as i mentioned um uh, my family uh volunteered a lot volunteered every you know year that marblehead happened and saw the sailors coming in and and uh hearing their stories and all the excitement and i just always wanted to be a part of it so uh going backwards a little bit um to how i got to my first marblehead race uh it started with so i had been sailing for a few years with uh my brother and my husband jason on uh we owned a j29 named foxfire and uh we had a lot of fun on that boat uh it was mainly you know my brother and i and and jason And then uh, all of our friends that some of them have never stepped on a boat before, so um, you know, uh, there's a lot of crews like that at the at the club today, where um, you know you're just inviting your friends and new experiences happening every Wednesday night, uh, which is great to see Uh, because I know I remember that time fondly uh, with all of our friends. We didn't do well, but we had a great time doing what we were doing out there. Um, But yeah, so after Foxfire. Uh, Jason and I went and sailed with uh, John Roy and Paul Gallant and we were lucky enough to do so anybody that's ever sailed with with those two moto and Leroy know that you can't get off the boat without learning a thing or two Um, and I certainly learned a whole lot from those two Um, not only sailing and racing related but also uh, I learned a new language um, Mm -hmm. that was (laughs) special uh, between Leroy and Moto. It took me a while to decipher what was going on and eventually started sort of jotting down uh, what things meant uh, because you couldn't ask during the race. You could ask after a race, but you could never ask during the race. So a few of them were, for for instance, a pedestrian. If you're looking out on the course and you see a boat that's not participating in the race, they're a pedestrian. Uh, If you see uh, a boat that you're competing against that is going faster than you, you say they've got sneakers or they've got sneakers on us as in like running sneakers. Yeah, uh, or like as, at yeah. least that's my interpretation or um, we've got trees. So that means we're going faster than all the other boats. So if you picture like driving through a forest and you see the trees going by really quickly. So those, <laughs> those are very creative. I love it. There's, there's way more than that. And some I have yet to understand, but uh, moto, uh, keeps that going I'm sure uh, now that John has passed but uh, yeah it was a great experience sailing with those guys for the most part we sailed on the Melges 32 and that was a whole new experience for me because that was a planing haul boat and uh, we had some wild wet and wild rides on that boat for sure but uh, yeah getting back to my first experience with Marblehead so in 2015 Stu McRae brought uh, the J120 deviation to the club and him and Matt Christie were putting together a team for um that year's marblehead and um you know it's actually what i found that was not the first year that i tried to get on a boat um it's it's very difficult for women to get on offshore racing teams um it's a very male dominated sport um and a lot of times you know being offshore on a boat you're in very cramped quarters uh you learn a lot of personal things about other people cuz you are living in a you know 40 foot space with you know seven other crew members so and there's also a lot of teams that have sailed together for long periods of time so um, getting in on one of those crews is pretty difficult Uh, but I know you know even today it's uh, difficult for women to get on offshore sailing uh, teams even though we're seeing uh, a lot of progress in that area Uh, but yeah so without um, John and Paul's recommendation uh, I wouldn't have been invited to sail on on deviation so I, uh, my childhood dream of uh, sailing in Marblehead definitely uh, came true, not only because of Stu inviting me to join his, his team, but definitely because of Moto and Leroy's support in uh, in getting me on that team. So Jason and I joined uh, Team Deviation in 2015, and I got to do my first Marblehead race uh, that year. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I sort of pictured it was going to be this, this crazy uh, adventure, but it ended up being, I think it was, that year was a bit of a floater. So there wasn't big stories that came out of it, uh, but it it was a good time. It was either that year or 2017 that we uh Matt Christie and Rob McLean and uh, Cam and Jason and I did a delivery down, and we ended up getting stuck in a, a pretty gnarly system, and uh had that 40 foot uh, RV on the water going about uh, 22.7 knots. I think was our top speed. Uh, rushing down the waves, So we've definitely had uh, some unique experiences. And then, so I did three marble heads on, on deviation, uh, which is an incredible crew learned a lot from them as well. And thankful to, to the team for having me. Uh, but I also got to do back to the Bermuda triangle, got to do a uh, Newport to Bermuda ocean race, uh, which is just the tip of the triangle. You don't actually go into the the triangle again, but uh, that was another, uh, Very interesting experience. Anytime you cross the Gulf, you're going to run into some interesting weather. And and that we did. We had, uh, there was a moment between Stu McCray and I, we were both on deck. And uh, we were in about 50 knots of breeze, like at least high 40s. And all of a sudden, Stu and I are both weather geeks. We message each other year round around different storm systems that are happening. And uh, all of a sudden, it started hailing. So it's you know the water temperature is I don't know 20 degrees Celsius and the air temperature is above that, so it's nice and warm out. And then all of a sudden it starts hailing, and, and any weather geek knows that hail is not a good sign <laughs> when it comes to weather systems. So uh, luckily we avoid it, whatever that was. But um, but yeah, lots of lots of great stories and adventures of offshore sailing with uh, Team Deviation. So you talk
0: about uh, like your journey in, into sailing um, and are you often, you know, one of a few women on board when you do the offshore racing or, or
1: even Wednesday night racing perhaps? For the most part, I'm, I'm the only woman on board and that's not unusual. Um, and it's still not unusual mm-hmm. to have, yeah, actually it's more usual to have all male crews. Um, I, I was looking at the stats with offshore and I think um, the last, Marblehead, I think like 30 or 40% of the boats, maybe even closer to 50, had had at least one, one woman on board. So that's great. But yeah, for the most part, it's it's still very limited women. When you're looking at regattas where you're able to have more people on board, like Chester and stuff like that, then, then we always had um, more people on board, which brought more women like Dana Archibald sailed with us, um, at least one Chester. So, so it was nice to have other women on board for sure. that's a big question I think we're in a very interesting time right now Um, as far as not only our club is I think all clubs are facing pretty huge challenges right now aside from coronavirus we'll put that aside for now and just talk about sort of where we are today Um, but um, you know all all clubs are facing a bit of a a demographic downturn so uh, an aging membership So that's one of the biggest things that that we're tackling as far as member services goes is making sure that uh, you know we're creating uh, engaging events and activities not only for uh, the majority of our membership which is a more aged category uh, but also trying to incorporate the younger membership which mainly consists of um, you know families so one of the things that um, has changed when we talk about How we've evolved a little bit is, um, you know, a couple decades ago, not even that long ago, it was pretty usual for a man to go out and socialize at the club. There was even a dedicated night for it Um, or the parents to socialize together and leave the kids at home. Um, And what we see today is that families like to spend time together and do a lot of activities together. The other thing is that we're competing with a lot of very active social and activity schedule today. Um, So what we're focused on is really creating an environment where we can um, position the club as um, you know your place to go for downtime and relaxation and enjoyment with your family. Um, So encouraging um, people to come and engage and, and meet other members through activities like our recently introduced Wine Appreciation Club so that's a great way for uh, people to come and engage and, and meet each other. And what we're seeing is that, you know, a lot of members that have been members of the club for a long time that maybe never knew each other are, are interacting and, and building relationships um, and learning while they're there, learning lots about wine. Check it out if you, haven't, uh, if you haven't checked it out yet. We'll be resuming those as soon as we can. Um, and then also things like having free childcare during events. So making sure that the kids have, some entertainment and and opportunity to to participate in the events that we have, uh, while the parents can still um, take part in sort of the more adult nature of of activities. And then additionally, we're looking at you know making sure that there's activities around. Um, so if your family you know has some downtime either in the evening or on the weekend, come to the club and uh, enjoy yourself. There's there's games available and toys available at any time. So croquet uh badminton and uh some some other games that are available all the time for kids to play aside from all the great amenities that we have at the club so the pool and whatnot um so we're really trying to focus on making the club strengthening ties with the membership and, and making the club sort of that place that you go uh when you have some downtime i think uh past vice commodore barbara pike puts it the best she thinks of club as sort of her cottage so instead of renting a cottage or buying cottage um, she sees her membership at the club as the cottage and, and what other place would you would you like to be we have a pretty beautiful and special spot there right on the arm uh, to enjoy summer evenings and in conversation with fellow members.
0: Captain Andrews on our last episode episode three um, he's done some remarkable research some of which we will see in an upcoming edition of the Lifeline uh, regarding a woman named Doris Black who Uh, legend has it we're still waiting on some bits of research but that she was the first female uh, sailor and boat owner of the squadron Um, so that was pretty incredible Uh, he's going to tell a little bit about her story but uh, just wondering from your perspective you know on the the journey of women in the club and also for the sport of sailing you know do you think that we've come quite a long way
1: yeah I heard the episode uh, uh, with uh, Captain Andrews and it, very interesting. I look forward to that article. Um, like he mentioned, you know, it, it's, it's our club has a longer history of males at it than, than females. Um, so it, it, I would say, you know, definitely we're moving in the right direction. Um, more and more uh, boats are skippered by females. Uh, Luna is a great example with our own VC of finance, uh, Lorna Fleming skippering it. Um, Liz White as an example, but all all kinds of female sailors have gone way ahead of me as far as uh, being an offshore sailor um, or being a very competitive sailor. There's plenty of great examples. Judy Robertson, Paula Minikin, Jessica Brown, my aunt Teen, Ann Acklin, you know, just to name a few um, as far as people that I've looked Mm -hmm. up to in uh, female sailing um and obviously we have some great uh competitors coming out of the learn to sail and into you know world-class sailing events in the in the dinghy racing um so we've definitely come a long way we still have uh a ways to go there's a lot of things happening outside of the squadron so in in international events or or even just other yaw clubs where uh they're doing a whole lot to encourage women to get on board and having mixed gender crews so there was a lot of movement around um, having women only racing and stuff like that to encourage women to sort of up their skills and get more comfortable racing. But now what we're seeing is like, for instance, for instance, the Melja series out of uh, New York Yacht Club um, to race, you need to have a good mix of not only gender, but age as well. So making sure that the younger folks are getting involved in keelboat racing, which is something, something that we need to look at as well. Peter Wickler yeah exactly so trying to transition um you know the learn to sail the dinghy racers into keelboat racing to create as Seal Nova Scotia says Sailors for Life or Sail Canada so um just getting everybody involved in in getting on the water and uh and you know keep those numbers up and maybe hopefully we can get back to that time where I was talking about where we had those big opener series and and very active Wednesday and Thursday night racing uh, across the board
2: and your role uh in India obviously v c member services you know, it's quite broad um, a very important role uh following on in the footsteps of you know more than a few notable people in the club i mean how do you see that role and um and your scope influencing the direction of the club moving forward yeah it's um, as you said it, it, it is a big question you know with a with a very big answer and there's a lot of different moving parts i think that and obviously we've spoken a lot and and the current board has spoken a lot about um you know really you know moving forward confidently into a new world that, that that is different very different to Doris Black's day you know obviously and very different to the three generations of Morrisons that um you know as you mentioned before you know every every uh you know era there has been different as well so we're moving into a new one um and you know certainly looking at looking at how to engage families young people build participation in the sport you know have fun while doing it you know, if people gravitate towards racing then fantastic we'll have a you know a nice um, entertaining program for them um and if people just want to come and hang out we'll uh, we'll have everything you know in line for them as well so you know i'm i'm personally very excited once we get this current state of affairs out of the way um about really moving forward um and being you know engaging as as much as we can as often as we can so mm.
1: yeah i think one of the the main things you know when you think about how the club has transitioned is what what we've looked at as, you know, a sailing club. Um and a lot of people see the club as the place they keep their boat or the place that they race out of. And what the member services committee is really focused on is uh expanding our members' view of of their club and um hoping that they sort of, you know, incorporate it as a lifestyle. So so sort of looking at the club as life on the water. Um not just where you keep your boat. Um so you know, again, a lot of engaging activities and just trying to strengthen those relationships between members and and, and their clubs.
2: Outstanding. Well, India, I've I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for for taking time out of your schedule. Um, just to uh, obviously, in isolation, as, as as we all are at this at this point in time. So, thank you again.
1: It's been a pleasure talking to. Uh, to you guys. And I miss you guys. (laughs) It's been a while since we've (laughs) seen each other. So it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you again for putting this together and, and keeping us all connected during this downtime.
2: Thanks so much. We'll talk soon.